I have lots to cover today. I'm going to jump right in. I'm really glad you're here, and I've been praying um, this week that this message would, uh, would really shift some things in us um, towards, towards health. So think about, for a minute, think about your favorite film, uh, one, of your, one of your favorite movies, kind of your go-to, get one in your head, all right? Is there a chase scene in the movie? Is there some kind of pursuit happening in the film? Is there like a multi-lane freeway scene? Is there a, no? Okay. Is there, um, is there some sort of a global tracking of a rogue agent, right? We're, we're tr- chasing him down. Is there a sprint through gridlock traffic to a church before she marries the wrong guy? Is there that? <laughs> some kind of like pursuit, some kind of chasing. Uh, most good stories involve somebody who's running, Uh, Which is interesting to me. And I don't think it's just about being like, we need an exciting scene in the movie. I think it resonates with something deeper in the human experience. I think that you can summarize the Bible as a story of, as a chase scene, as a story of God's pursuit in love of his creation. It's a chase scene, it's a pursuit story. What's God doing in the story? He's pursuing us. And what are we doing in the story? Well, A lot of the time we're running. We're running away. Uh, Maybe it's fear that causes us to run away. Maybe it's pride that causes us to run away. Maybe it's ignorance that causes us to run away. But it seems that our tendency is to respond to God's amazing offer of salvation by resisting, maybe even turning, and maybe even running away. Maybe many of you could tell the story of when you finally stopped running and you finally turned around and you faced God and maybe even ran back towards God. That's when you surrendered. That's the word we use for that. You surrendered to God. You stopped running. And though that major conflict is probably settled in many of your lives, I bet there are still times when you sense in yourself the tendency to respond to God's pursuit of you with resistance. I bet there are still days when you feel like God's invitation to you into deeper intimacy with him creates this weird, almost irrational, like, no thank you, I think I'm going to go this way instead. Maybe the tendency to respond to God's offer, to trust you at a de- to trust him at a deeper level with a part of your life you haven't trusted him with entirely before. Maybe because a kid's gone off to college, or maybe you're accepting this invitation to submit more fully your finances or something, and there's this invitation from a loving God who's pursuing you, and yet there's this resistance, there's this, there's this desire to, to push back, maybe even run away. Friends, this is why stability is so important to us personally. Personally. Embracing stability is how we stop running. It's how we allow ourselves to be found. The logic is simple. It's if God is here, then I must not run away. If God is here, I need to stay. If God is here, I need to be here too. Embracing stability is the opposite of running. It's the opposite of restless wandering, which is a theme that you read throughout the history of the church as part of the broken condition of humanity. It's how I come to know the God who is always here. It's through stability. So we're just a couple of, a couple of weeks into this series on the wisdom of stability, and that may be kind of a weird word for you to use in terms of a personal value or a spiritual practice, so let me throw out a few um, synonyms. When we're talking about stability, we're talking about perseverance. 
We're talking about steadfastness. That's the word that often shows up in the Psalms. We're talking about staying put. We're talking about holding on. We're talking about the ability to stick with it. But it's not just effort. It's deeper than that. We're talking about an inner peace when we're talking about stability. We're talking about a deep stillness, a confidence, a rootedness. Think big tree planted by streams of living water. Roots going down deep. Branches reaching out wide. It's solid. It is not fragile. It is not easily moved. It's solid. It's stable. We're not talking simply about living at the same address for your whole life, though sometimes that's a real tangible and practical way to embrace stability. But it's deeper than that. We're talking about this inner quality of strength, this stillness that keeps us from running away, that keeps us from avoiding pain and constantly trying to escape real life. So about 10 years ago, here's a story. I was, I was going through this old library, and I found this thin little red book, and I pulled it off the shelf, and it was called The Rule of St. Benedict. I didn't know who St. Benedict was. I didn't know what a rule was. I had no idea what I was holding. It would become the book I read the most other than the Bible for the next decade of my life. It's become a really important book for me. But I had never heard of it up until now, so I flipped through the first part of the book, and I came to the first sentence of the first chapter, and this is what it says. There are clearly four kinds of monks. And I was just so curious about that that I just, there are? I just kept reading. It like captivated me. And what I read in the next few paragraphs was a remarkably insightful description of this all too common trend of people moving from one church to another, seeking hospitality, receiving it, but then moving on before responsibility is required of them. The writer referred to people like this as gyrovegs. I had no idea what that meant. I would come to understand that it means someone who wanders aimlessly. A gyroveg, someone who, like gyroscope, someone who wanders aimlessly. And I don't remember the details of what was happening in my life at the moment, but I'm feeling like it must have been a difficult season for me. I'm feeling like I must have felt like people were leaving our community, or I was losing friends, or something like that, because I felt like the first page of this book was describing my core conviction, my core frustration with the church in 21st century America. And I was so surprised when I was, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Who is this guy? I turn to the front of the book and I find that it's not even written in America. It's written in Italy in the 6th century. He's talking about something 1,400 years ago. And I remember thinking, okay, if this guy understands my problem so well, maybe he could offer me a solution. So I kept reading. And the solution, very simply put, is the vow of stability. That's his solution. That's Benedict's solution. This monk, 6th century, starts Christian communities when the Roman Empire is just in shambles and the church is a disaster. Benedict believed that in order to experience God, one needed to stay put. But he recognized how difficult this is for us because we have wandering hearts. So if your heart is a wandering thing, it is really, really hard to stay put. So Benedict takes the value of stability and he turns it into a vow. He takes the value and he makes it a vow. 
Now, here's what's so intense and confrontational about a vow. Many of you have made at least one, maybe two vows. If you're married, you have made a a marriage vow, a wedding vow, which is essentially the promise to love and remain faithful to your spouse for the rest of your life. Uh, Some of you have been baptized. And if you've been baptized, we're going to baptize three kids after church today. And they're going to make these vows. It's essentially one vow, which is essentially the vow to follow Jesus for the rest of your life. If you're an ordained minister, you've made a vow to serve the church. Most of us have some experience of making some kind of a vow, right? Now, here's what's so intense about that. A vow implies right from the get-go that this is going to be a struggle. (laughs) A vow says right at the start, this is going to be difficult. This is why we make the vow, to fortify our wills for battle, which we anticipate are coming down the road. Part of what a marriage vow reveals is some level of awareness of the challenge inherent in being married. So the core part of a wedding ceremony, if you only had seven minutes before the authorities were going to come down and blow the whole thing away, you would just do the vow, right? And at that moment, the vow is basically this, a public statement that acknowledges that the relationship you're about to enter into is going to be so difficult that you're going to have to promise ahead of time not to run away from it. You're going to have to make a vow, in fact, to stick it out because this is going to be so hard. Benedict required those who were entering monasteries to make three vows because he knows that life is so challenging that we will resort to this somehow native sort of broken thing inside of us that says, I'm just going to deal with pain by leaving. And so he requires monks, the people who join his communities, to make three vows. And the first of the three vows is the vow of stability. That's where it begins. A monk promises to live with these specific people in this specific place according to this specific rule for the rest of his life. Amen. In the next few weeks, we're going to consider the people part. We're going to consider the place part. Both of those are important. Today, I want to consider the personal part. How the vow of stability affects us personally. Benedict's vow of stability was arguably the central component to monastic life. All kind of centers around this. One monk said to me plainly, well, if you don't stay, you can't be a monk. It kind of comes down to that, right? It's stability that enables true ongoing personal conversion that is so central or transformation that is so central to the monastic experience, and I would say to the entire Christian experience. I was talking to a young monk in Italy over the summer. He'd only been a part of the monastery for two years, and I asked him how the vow of stability was impacting his life, and I expected some big, grandiose, theologically rich statement about something about for the rest of my life. That's the part that I was kind of leaning in on. And what he said was just so refreshingly practical. He said this. He said, sometimes stability is just being faithful to staying put for an hour of prayer. You simply bring that commitment of stability into the struggle. And then he walked out of my room. I mean, that was, that was it. It was like, I was expecting some, and you have to do this for the rest of your, but that's not what he said. The commitment is lived out one hour at a time. And you bring that commitment, that vow, right into the struggle, whatever the struggle is. In other words, you may feel like leaving, 
but you commit to stay, even if I'm just staying for an hour at a time. So I want to make this disclaimer, and it's really important. This is an asterisk on the sermon, okay? Um, And it's this. There are situations and there are conditions that clearly call for a person to run away. Okay, there are. And I'm not talking about those today. Okay, I'm not talking about those today. I'm not talking about abusive relationships. I'm not talking about toxic, destructive environments. I'm not talking about that. I'm not saying you should stay no matter what. There are exceptions to that. What I am trying to say this morning is I, I do want to challenge the idea that as soon as things get uncomfortable, we should leave. I do want to confront the notion that this is hard equals I should leave. Okay. And I know that this is an uncomfortable topic. And it's uncomfortable for each of you and for me for different reasons in detail. But in one sense, it's all the same reason. It's that this kind of teaching puts a finger right where it hurts. So I'm going to, instead of talking about what you should do, I want to share, and I've received permission to share a personal story about this challenge, because this is what I've experienced, and I hope that in that way it would be um, instructive or illustrative to you. Um, I want to talk to you about one of the times when I really needed inner strength. I really needed a a stable soul. Um, I needed to be like a tree that was planted. But it was a time when I battled an intense desire to run. I wanted to leave. I wanted to move into fantasy. I wanted to lose myself in a daydream because it was in a, t- a time of especially, uh, an especially painful time in my life. It was when my four-year-old son was diagnosed with leukemia and endured years of hospital stays and all this crazy chaos, sometimes barbaric reality of chemotherapy. And his physical pain was amplified, friends, by his lack of understanding. He was just a little boy. And so as a child, he was not able to comprehend that the the long-term purposes of the efforts that we were engaged in to try to treat the disease, from his perspective, we were just constantly forcing him to do things he didn't want to do. Fast every day, take pills every day. And the daily pills and the weekly trip to the oncologist, those things hurt. And our insistence that they would help infuriated him. And the emotional toll this took on my wife and I was unprecedented. We'd never experienced anything like this before. The challenge of staying in this conflict was super, super hard for us. And so sometimes on the rare quiet evening when the kids would go to sleep in an attempt attempt to take a break from the reality of our lives, just for a couple hours, we we would turn on a movie. And while losing ourselves in the story of another, other than our own, provided some kind of temporary escape, and and I think it was fine, and it was probably even good for us on some level. Clearly, there's no problem with watching a movie in the evening to kind of relax. But here's what I want to share about that experience with you. And it's this distinct memory I have of a dreadful feeling that would start to creep back into my mind and my heart as soon as my mind realized, oh, the movie's about to end. Right? This pretend story that I've been sort of living in for the last two hours, it's pretend. And the real story of my life, it's coming back. And the sadistic sort of, sort of surprising reality about this experience was that it would come in, my reality would come in harder it was like we had dammed up the pain. We had not diverted it. 
It was just dammed up and waiting to be released. And then once the daydream of the movie was over, that dam would release and the dread of real life would come back with like intensified vengeance. And it was like we would feel the initial shock <gasps> again. We would like feel the initial like dread again, almost like it was the first time as we came back into the painful reality that was our experience. We had only momentarily manipulated our emotions, and now real life would come back in with sobering reality and force. Friends, because I was in pain, I felt like escaping, but escaping wasn't the answer. Do you know what I had to learn how to do? Live in the pain. I didn't know how to do that. I had to learn how to do that, and I think I probably struggled to sort of do it sometimes. To borrow um, the language of a writer named Esther DeWall, she says this, that the, the vow of stability addresses this basic demand. What is the basic demand? It is the need to not run away. Right. Any so-called solution which required separation of real life into fabricated parts was unrealistic and therefore impotent. In other words, disintegrating cancer from the rest of our life, trying to put a little category called cancer and stick it in there, it was totally unrealistic. It was impossible because cancer was affecting everything. So we desperately needed inner healing, right? We needed something that was not independent from the rest of our real world because how good would that be? What help would that give? This is why stability is the necessary foundation for spiritual growth. What was the edge of my need for growth at that time in my life? It was learning how to live with pain. Required to do so was to stay. I had to stay. We had to have stability there. It required a level of honesty about life that you can simply not experience if your response to pain and disappointment and difficulty is to bail out. You never learn this if you're always running. Stability confronts that primal urge to escape. It bars the door. That's what stability does. It says it's the guy at the door that looks at you and you're running and you're getting ready to go. And he says he looks at you and he says you can't leave. Because this is unavoidable. So turn around and face it. That is your only real life option. So... My favorite part about playing catcher in high school was that playing catcher was the, most, was the baseball position most like a football position. And uh, occasionally, there would be these plays at the plate. You know a play at the plate, like there's a runner on base, probably second or third, the batter hits a shot into the outfield, the, the outfielder receives the ball, and here comes the runner coming in to score, and the throw is also coming into the plate. And it's going to be a collision. And I played baseball in the late 80s and early 90s when runners were taught to drive through the catcher, right? None of this pansy concussion stuff, all right? So, so this, and I loved this because, see, here's what's going on. The runner has momentum. The runner knows exactly where he's headed. In order to be a meaningful part of the situation or solution, the catcher is required to stay because the ball is coming to the plate. You have to stay in order to make any difference. But guess what? 
That guy's got 90 feet of momentum on you, and he's counting on the fact that you will be so flustered, so jarred, so disturbed by the fact that he's getting closer and closer and closer that you will not stay, that you will leave. And what I discovered was that if you did stay, and if you, in fact, didn't just sort of uh, stay, but you, like, put the cleats in the ground, you faced up, and you, in fact, kind of moved in, oh, it was fun, because they weren't expecting that. They weren't expecting the catcher to, like, face it and, in fact, move into it with force. Now, if the guy was this little pansy dude, I could knock him out, and that was what he did not expect. Often, he was bigger than me, and so he would bowl me over. But here's the cool thing. If you held on to the ball, right? If you held on to the ball, can you show this, Ryan? If you hold on to the ball, he's out anyway, right? Right, watch, there's a couple of clips in case you have no idea what I'm talking about. Maybe. Got him. Got him. See, it looks like the catcher loses, but he doesn't. He wins. This is a good one. Oh, here he comes. Yes, but yes, he's got the ball. Love it, love it. All right, I went back and forth on how, like, should I include this or not? Because you know this sounds like some 45-year-old dude trying to relive his glory days, and it kind of is, right? <laughs> but here's why I decided to go ahead and stick it in here, because you know what, friends? I need images like this today. I need these images. I love the tree by the river image. That's helpful. But this image is also very helpful to me. I need images like this today. When my phone rings and I look at it and I'm like, oh, I know what this is. And you know what I want to do? Send to voicemail, right? But what do I need to do? Why? Because it's painful. That's why. But what do I need to do? What do I need to do to grow as a leader? What do I need to do to become the man that my sons can admire? I need to face this. That's what I need to do. I need to face it, right? So I need images like this. I need images like this when I'm interacting with all of you throughout the week and I see you in such intense pain and I know because I've seen some things that the next season for your life is going to be super hard. It might actually break you at some level. And all I want to do is just say, oh, just run. Just run because the future is so painful. But what I know and better, I know better than to say that, I know that what the only real life solution is to, is to stay, is to stay. And you know what? This pain, if you face it, it will, it will be surprised by you. And maybe it will totally blow you back. Maybe it will knock you out for the next season of your life. But man, my prayer for you is that you'll just hold on, right? That some core to who you are and at some level, some kernel of faith, you don't even get God, like God, wonder if he is a God, but you will hold on to this for a season or in the midst of a season that is super, super painful to you. And so I need images like this. Having a sick child uh, was a level of pain that was sick, was, was impossible to ignore. It was difficult to ignore. In other words, we had to deal with that. It was just, we didn't really have much of a choice. Um, so in the sense that dealing with that situation was 
In, in a sense, that, that situation was easy because it was impossible to ignore. More common than those kinds of kids with cancer sorts of situations are the subtle faults, the subtle sins, the stuff that is just sort of easy to sort of live with for the rest of your life, but also needs to be addressed We've become really sophisticated at not facing those kinds of equally destructive things through nonstop activity and all kinds of extra relationships. Even good things like family and food and work can be twisted and used as a mask to hide from the brokenness of sin. And stability is just as important when wrestling these less obvious obstacles to peace as stability is important when facing overwhelming kinds of sorrow. So when tempted to pretend or avoid, we should be honest and we should stay. We should stay. This is how we'll experience a spirituality that makes a difference in real life, which I got to believe is what we're all looking for. None of this easy, it works if everything's fine kind of illusion. And, and you need to know, and I know you do, that this kind of spirituality is going against the grain big time. It's going against the grain. Because in our culture, you can have anything you want anytime you want it. At least that's what you've been told, and so that's probably what you believe. And the few times that you've received exactly what you want, when you want it, you tend to credit yourself. That's right. That's right. I deserve it. I had this coming, right? This is the way life's supposed to be. And then the rest of the time, when you don't get exactly what you want, exactly when you want it, it's easy to fashion yourself the victim, right? It's not my fault. If only that had happened, right? If only she hadn't have done it that way, if he would have taken care of it like this. So confronting this hyper-consumeristic perspective on reality, which we're all swimming in, is this remarkable word from St. Benedict, which is all about stability, where he says, you need to embrace a little strictness. And I've talked about this before. You need to embrace a little strictness. This is the perhaps astonishing notion that one would choose to limit one's options or choices for a greater purpose. That the good that you get from limiting consumption is ultimately more valuable than anything you could consume. So instead of perpetually moving on to the next thing, you might choose, you might embrace a little stability. Instead of moving on to the next thing, you might choose just to stay. Rather than ceaselessly pursuing more and more and more, you might embrace a little strictness and decide, you know what, that's enough. That's enough. Embracing a little strictness is, is just this simple, practical discipline. We could apply it to food, to sleep, to sex, to any other good thing, but it is a powerful step in the way of living that is characterized by peaceful stability rather than the stupor of consumerism or sometimes the chaos of fear. Now let's get to Paul and I'll, I'll move towards the conclusion. The Apostle Paul makes this astounding statement at one of the ends, the ends of one of his letters. It's the Philippians uh, letter. He writes, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. That just blows my mind. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. How many people do you run into throughout the day whose joy and peace are unaffected by the circumstances? I mean, almost nobody. Uh, it seems to, we seem to be almost entirely ruled by our circumstances. Paul continues, he says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Well, what's the secret, Paul? Paul declares it. He tells it right there in Philippians. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. That's his secret. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. We talked about how Paul is radically dependent on Jesus. That's his secret. My question this morning about that is this. How did he learn that? Show me 
what he did that convinced him of this amazing gospel truth that he can do all things through Christ who gives him strength. What did he do? How did he learn that? Here's the answer. He stayed. He stayed put in the midst of pain. He didn't run. He pressed in. He faced all kinds of adversity. He develops the ability to experience true peace in the midst of chaos by staying in the chaos. We commonly think of Paul as always on the move. He's famous for his missionary journeys. He's writing letters. I'm on my way. I'll be back to see you later. He's always doing that. But a closer look reveals this remarkable level of perseverance. Ryan will put some, picture, uh, some scriptures up on the screen. Listen, I press on toward the goal, he tells the Philippians. He repeatedly mentions his endurance of physical suffering rather than the option, which would be to abandon the mission by pointing to his own scars as evidence of his commitment. He says this to the Galatians, I bear on my body the very marks of Jesus. He says this to the Colossians, remember my chains. He shares this with the Corinthian church, this intimate glimpse into this personal struggle. We don't know what the struggle is. He calls it a thorn in his flesh. He pleads three times to be freed from it. But then he writes this, But the Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, if you'll permit this sort of loose paraphrase of what I hear him saying, Paul is writing that God says to him, With my power, you can learn to live with this, Paul. Your body wants to avoid this pain, but I want to teach you something that can only be learned while you're in the pain. What in the world is that? It's that my powerful presence is right there. It's not somewhere else. It's right there, which is not to say that God causes the pain. Not what I'm saying. It is to say that God exists even in the midst of the brokenness that is the pain. And Paul learns this amazing truth through stability by staying, even when it's hard. Yes, at first glance, we see Paul always on the move, but the inner man is unshakable. He stands firm. He, and, and that's how he learns the secret of constant contentment. He practices this deep inner personal stability, come what may. He embraces a little strictness before he hits the crisis, so when the crisis comes, he knows how to stand. And finally, he instructs the Ephesians. He says, be strong in the Lord so that you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Like dig in your cleats, face the adversary. It's got 90 feet of momentum. It's coming right at you. It's trying to get right through you. But you're going to stand. Right? The real goal is not being in one place. The real goal is having this stability of heart the stability of heart. I am unmovable. So here's the message, friends. We must, we must learn to be here. We must learn to be here. Here is hard. Here is broken. Here is really, really painful for some of you right now. But we have to learn to be here. I can remember the past and wish for it, but it's gone. I cannot get back to it. I can dream about the future or worry about it, but I can't get there. I am only ever right here. This is the only place I can ever really be, is right here in the present. And you know what's beautiful about that? God's in the past, and God's in the future. I can't get to God in either of those places. He's outside. of The only place I can encounter God is right here, right now. 
And this is encouraging because you know where I can get the healing from the guilt of the past? Do you know the only place I can receive the courage and the wisdom and the insight for the pressures of the future? Right here. It's the only place. My only option. Because right here is where I can encounter the presence of God. Right here. In the pain. And so I have to be here. I can't check out. I will remove myself from the only place that exists for me, limited human, to receive the grace and the strength I need from God. So it's crucial that we learn how to be present. Three quick ideas on how to practice being here to wrap up. Three quick ideas. And these are some of the ways that uh, they're just things that have helped me. The first idea is to brew tea. Brew tea. During a really intense season of grief, I was given a loose leaf tea steeper. I didn't even drink tea. Um, but I was given this loose leaf tea steeper. And during seasons where it was really challenging and it was, it was hard for me to sit still, I was barely praying. Well, brewing tea just takes a couple of minutes. And, and so when sitting still seemed almost impossible, I would just get up early in the morning, I'd heat up some water, I'd put some tea leaves in this thing, and I'd pour hot water in there, and I would just watch the water change. Right? Just watch the leaves unfurl. And I'd just be right here. Just be here. One minute for green tea, three minutes for black tea. Right? <laughs> And, and I, would just eat, I would just say, you know what, Nate? While this tea steeps, I'm going to be present. I'm just going to be here. And I would hold it, and then I'd pour it into a cup, and I would, like, smell the steam. I mean, it was, like, really basic, practical stuff. I was just trying to slow my crazy mind down. I'd hold the cup. I had this little cup. It had no handle. Somebody gave me this little cup. I had to hold it with two hands. And I would give myself permission just for a few minutes. Just be here. Just be here. And slowly I started to say, God, would you be here with me? I'm so in pain right now. Would you just be here with me while I drink this tea? And then life's going to go crazy and there's going to be an alarm and a, a shot that's needed or something. Just be here with me. And slowly that became this really powerful experience. I closed my eyes. All my other senses would come alive. Smell, taste. Remember the warmth in my mouth. Remember that first drink of hot you know, in the morning? All the way down inside you. Started to associate the love of God with this tea. <laughs> Gratitude came easy in that moment when I was just wild with fear the rest of the time. But gratitude came easy in that moment. Second way that I've practiced being present is by taking pictures. I started taking pictures when I was in a season of life when I needed to slow down. And it was when, you know, like your phone became your camera and it became pretty easy to take pictures. And so I practiced paying attention to what was being rolled out right in front of me. My toddler's chubby little hands, the little green tips of, of pine tree leaves, Really cool patterns in, in tractor wheels, sunsets. I just take pictures. And the anticipation of seeing something wonderful helped me to pay attention and, and stay present to the moment. And the part of me that needs to constantly achieve something was sort of satisfied by the fact that I was taking pictures. <laughs> and it was neither the quality or the picture of the picture or the use of the picture that mattered. Because I wasn't trying to win an award and I wasn't posting anything. It was just... It's just a practice to be present. At other times, this can have a very opposite effect, so you have to be careful with this one. If it's Christmas morning and you're backing out of real life to take a picture, right? You're just another photographer on the sideline. You're missing real life. And it's made even worse now by this incessant desire that most of us have to post to who knows who out there, and we pull ourselves even farther out of reality. But if, but if you're drowning in regret, friends, if you're wild with fear, I'd encourage you to take a walk with the camera. Just capture the moment. 
as you experience it. And the third example is, is journaling. A way to practice being present, a way to learn to be here is to journal. I began journaling during a time of real confusion. I didn't know who was telling me the truth. I had to write it all down. I had to work it out on paper. This proved so helpful to me that I still journal every day. And I begin, I write the date, I write the time, and I, September 20th, kitchen table, 551, and then I'll write something about the moment. It's dark outside. I mean, I'm barely awake, right? Uh, I'm so tired, or I'm reading Psalm 19. I, just, I do something to like bring me right to this moment. Less important as a record-keeping journal uh, is the practice of just getting here now. I find that so helpful. And so this is different than an explorer's detailed account of the flora and fauna that he's discovering. It's different than the teenager's diary that's like pouring out. It's, it's more about like pen and paper prayer. That's what I'm doing. Just pen and paper, paper prayer. And it's a way to be attentive for me. A way to literally take note of what's going on inside me and around me. Final story. There's a well-known theologian in the ancient church. His name is Augustine. Have you ever heard of Augustine? He's a famous church philosopher and theologian. He's respected by the Eastern Church and the Western Church. His writings are considered critical. He's called a doctor of the church. He's famous. He's also famous, not just for his theological writings, but for his rebellious youth. Did you know that? He was notoriously a troublemaker. He fathered a child when he was, in, when, and he was a high school student, when he was a teenager. Later in his life, he writes 13 books. Now they're all put together in one book called The Confessions. It's the first Western autobiography. And he tells the story of all of the craziness of his youth and then how he comes to God. And the book is famous for this line among others. Augustine writes, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Have you heard that? You have made us for yourself, God. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Augustine's story is that he looked everywhere for adventure and meaning and love and peace and all sorts of places, but they always just kept turning up destruction and disappointment and despair until he surrendered his heart to God and found in God the fulfillment for which he had always been truly longing. And then that true rest, that true calm, that true peace, that stability of soul, that's what filled him up what he says. You have made us for yourself, God. Our hearts are restless until they find uh, their rest in you. Let's pray together. I invite you to ask God for help to be here now. I hope you feel absolutely no guilt for wanting to run away. It's just the nature of being a broken person, and we all are broken. But I do hope to invite you to consider that the life you're looking for comes here. It comes right into this place, right here, as we are here. Um, even if here is hard, what you need is available to you here. Don't run away. Ask for grace to not pretend. I pray, Lord, you would establish in our hearts this deep rootedness, this stability, this foundation. Teach us how to be here. 
And may we grow strong and able to face adversity with greater calm and less chaos, with a deeper sense of an awareness of your love and presence with us, even here in the midst of it. And as we stay, would you please give us the wisdom and the insight to know how to handle, what to do next, how to respond well. But give us courage to stay, not to run. And may this church community be a support system, an encouragement that says, we'll help you stay. We're here with you. We have no idea how to handle the brokenness of this world. Except we'll be here with you in it. We'll hope for restoration together. We'll work for it together. Uh, even an hour at a time. In Jesus' name, amen.